The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and on this episode, I'm joined by Father Anthony Chicada, author of the book, Work of Human Hands. Father Chicada, thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be here once again, Stephen. Don't let the minor keys fool you, dear listeners. We're getting into probably the most major chapter of Work of Human Hands today. That is chapter 12, which is the Eucharistic Prayer Deplorable Impoverishment. Well, Father, I as I was doing preparation for today's episode, I found a familiar feeling uh, descend upon me, which was the same feeling that I felt when I read Sacrosanctum Concilium for the first time, which is a bit of horror. And, and I've read, I've, I've read the, the book before, several times actually, but when you're, when you're coming back to host a, a radio episode, you've got to really make notes and, and go even deeper maybe than your first couple of reads. And I just remember being surprised that you can actually read things printed that would insult the Roman canon, that would insult the practice of the mass as it had been for thousands of years. It could be that I've just been subsumed in tratty land for so long that I just take it for granted that no one would talk like this in public. But I think for me, chapter 12 is about shock, not for Novus Ordo practices, but for what the, what the reformers, the so-called reformers, the putative reformers, were willing to write in print and say in public about what we know as the irreformable Catholic mass. Well, the um, feeling of, of, of shock is not one that you would have had so much if you had lived through the 60s. Because the type of language that uh, you read in the chapter, Deplorable Impoverishment, uh, was a very common language in the 60s. These, these critiques of traditional liturgical practices were all over the place. And there were very few people who were uh, defending the uh, traditional liturgy, certainly very few who were defending uh, the Roman canon. So uh, since I've been exposed, I was exposed to all of this the first time around, uh, it's not really shocking. However, I can understand that for someone, as you say, coming out of a trad context, it can be very, very shocking indeed. And I suppose we should start uh, addressing that the chapter's name is the Eucharistic Prayer. And, and listeners, we're going to be doing chapter 12 in two parts. It's actually a, a fairly large chapter in the book. 
So uh, Father and I will will do part one today. Father, can you tell us the significance of the difference between using the phrase Eucharistic prayer versus the word canon? I suppose that'll help set us up to look at everything else today. Uh, sure. The word canon, as, as used to refer to the Roman canon, comes from a generic Greek word, which means a fixed measure, originally like a, um, like a yardstick. Then this is applied as well to uh, more abstract concepts like a, a law, so that uh, a law in Greek sometimes was referred to as a, a canon because it was a fixed norm uh, which was supposed to guard, uh, govern your conduct. It was supposed to tell you either what to do or what not to do. As applied to the canon of what the prayer that we call the canon of the Mass, the prayer that we're talking about has the words of, of uh, consecration uh, in the center of uh, the long prayer. And the idea of calling that whole prayer the canon is that it's supposed to be a fixed norm for confecting the, the Eucharist. This is supposed to be the prayer that, uh, uh, as a, a rule, in other words, in the sense of all the time, surrounds the uh, consecration of uh, the elements into the body and blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. So uh, that is the origin of the uh, traditional term, a, a fixed norm. Now, the parallel section of the Novus Ordo, the section that's parallel to the traditional Mass, is referred to uh, as a Eucharistic prayer. The reason there had to be a change in nomenclature is because this idea of a fixed norm for a prayer was changed. One of the ideas of uh, the reformers, in addition to, as we will hear, a, 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 a sort of disgust with and a distaste for the theological concepts found in the traditional Roman canon, was the idea that we should have more variety in these uh, different, uh, or in these, these prayers that surround uh, what they call the institution narrative that uh, people would become bored if they heard the uh, same prayer recited aloud in the vernacular uh, all the time. So we have to introduce variety here. So that's the difference between the two concepts. You have canon, the notion as the fixed rule in the traditional Mass, and Eucharistic prayer, the idea being that there are a number of uh, different prayers at this point in the a new Mass to, I guess, keep you from getting bored and to avoid all of the thorny and difficult anti-ecumenical theology of the Roman canon. Well, I mean, stop me from getting bored. I feel like there's, there's something in every part of the new Mass to try to, to stanch this from happening, but alas, um, you're going to get bored in the Novus Ordo. That's, uh, <laughs> that's its main function, I suppose. <laughs> now, as a little bit of cleanup work, Father, I... I I've stepped us into the canon, but to bridge us from our last episode, which we ended with the secret, which in the Novus Ordo is the not so secret anymore, I suppose. And, uh, and the canon itself, we have the preface and the sanctus. 
And um, I thought it was interesting. Uh, you, you had mentioned in your book that uh, one of the many prefaces in the Leonine Sacramentary um, was an attack upon monks. <laughs> so uh, I, wanted, I wanted two things. I mean, as, as a former monk yourself, I hope you didn't take that too personally. No, but, I but, didn't, no. But, but um, secondly, why 267 prefaces? That certainly wouldn't fit in my hand missile. <laughs> no, certainly not. Well, we have to uh, go back to a few concepts here. First of all, there's the idea of uh, the book that you uh, spoke about as a sacramentary. And remember, uh, this is a specific term that referred to uh, a uh, type of liturgical book used in the early church that had all of the priest's prayers in it. It didn't have the uh, chants that were sung by the choir or, or it didn't have the scripture readings. It had uh, just the, the prayers for the priest. Now, in um, uh, some of these sacramentaries, there were a large number of prefaces, a very large number of, of prefaces. And these uh, prayers were written in a certain um, uh, classical Roman spoken style. Uh, classical Roman rhetorical style. There's the balance to the phrases and a certain type of, of language that uh, the authors used. The um, people who put the sacramentaries together uh, copied into them and in, in, into the, the, the ones that have survived a large number of, of prefaces that would uh, be used for different uh, feasts of the church's liturgical year. And they saw this idea as, as uh, it, it was a nice idea to have uh, this this variety. So uh, there are prefaces that were composed for all sorts of liturgical occasions and all sorts of different needs. It's a little bit parallel to the idea in the traditional missal where in the back you find a number of optional prayers that can be said on certain days for uh, different needs. You know, the, to, to ask for rain, uh, for the election of a, a pope, uh, for the healing of a schism, for someone who is dying, etc. So that was the, the idea that you had these additional uh, prayers, uh, these additional prefaces for uh, different feasts throughout the liturgical year. I'm not quite sure what feast you would use the preface against monks on. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um, as I think I said in a footnote, it it's, uh, uh, was uh, too bad that the Jesuits didn't exist at that time because See, I certainly I always, would have written a preface, would, preface about them. <laughs> right, and I always have to remind our listeners that uh, I, both of my uh, my undergraduate and my graduate degrees are from from Jesuit universities. So this is one of those uh, one of those times that Father Chicada and Bishop Dolan like to like to give me a hard time for sure. Although, yeah, course, yeah that's it, right. We have to put the boot in, as they say. <laughs> right, right. It's and, and, and it's understood. Um, now. I, I suppose that if we look at the prefaces, we can see, as you as you point out within this uh, heading of this chapter, that organically over time the church obviously didn't retain all 267 prefaces, and, and that and that changed over time. And when we look at the the mass that you celebrate um, every day, how many around how many prefaces are we talking about? Oh, I'm almost bad with numbers. Uh, no more than two dozen. Um, right, not not the, anywhere near 267 is what you're saying. No, not anywhere near that. 
the uh, a number of them was uh, reduced at a certain point in uh, the history of the liturgy. The sacramentaries, with all of the numbers that, uh, with with the, for instance, two hundred preferences, etc., um, uh, underwent uh, you know subsequent uh, subsequent additions and were passed around and sent to different countries. And uh, I suspect that the number was uh, number of them was uh, reduced. Uh, because of the the question of practicality of 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 if you were say copying a missile, you copied it by hand, uh, it would be enormously difficult for you to copy out uh, 200 prefaces, uh, which might not necessarily be used all the time. So I suspect that that had something that had something to do with it. But in any event, the Trident <laughs> missile itself had. Uh, uh, had a greatly reduced number of prefaces, and only later in the 19th and 20th century were a few others added. For instance, the preface for the Mass for the Dead, the preface for Christ the King, uh, and uh, the Sacred Heart. So, uh, so the yes, I was going to say, Father, and it might be that uh, a monk spending nights and days copying out uh, text might purposely omit the attack on, on Monk's preface. I, I wouldn't uh, be that surprised in, to see that's that. That's entirely possible. <laughs> so, uh, again, the question begs us, and, and uh, in previous episodes, we've talked about the fact that the, the so-called reformers would always like to reference that they are the garters of ancient tradition, that they are the restorers of, of ancient practices, which is, of course, something that is is condemned by Pius XII and Mediator Dei anyway, this sort of uh, archaism. Uh, but again, we'll reference, if you've got 200-something prefaces, when you're going to go to the prefaces, why not just restore these? And, and did that happen, Father? Did they go back into the history books and restore some of these old prefaces to give us a bit more of that ancient flavor of the liturgy? And I think by this time, our listeners can probably guess the answer to that question themselves. Of course not. Of course not. Um, while uh, the new missile contains, I think, over 80 prefaces, they, uh, the reformers did not restore uh, the ancient prefaces in their uh, integrity. Uh, instead, the authors told us, that, well, they tended to put together a mosaic of phrases uh, and uh, further explanations, um, when you investigate further, uh, you find uh, one of the men involved saying that, well, you had to select texts that could be adapted to the modern mentality. And uh, otherwise, uh, this author said, uh, listening to them would have become unbearable, if not defective. So this is, of course, the code word a series of code words that we've seen used in the uh, creation of the new lectionary and in the uh, creation of the new set of collects that uh, you omit negative theology and phrases and concepts that uh, modern men and that modernists do not like. And that, of course, is what happened with uh, here with uh, the prefaces that were supposedly restored. They weren't restored at all. 
Well, and uh, as a preface, now we get to the Sanctus, which is the last thing that we uh, recite before we uh, move towards the canon. Now, of course, when I say recite, I, in the Novus Ordo, I say we, because everyone does that. Now, within the traditional Mass, the context of a high Mass, this would also be sung, but this would be sung separately. The choir sings it separately from the priest who says it himself with his... Uh, with, uh, by himself at, at the altar. Now, uh, just as a, a point of um, sort of humor, Father, uh, which I know you'll appreciate it, when I was uh, at St. Mary's in, in, and we were at High Mass on, on Sundays, the entire congregation was standing when the Sanctus was begun because it was being sung by, by the choir and the congregation. And, but we always mm -hmm. knew that there was a lady uh, who was on the epistle side uh, about 14 rows from the front on the right-hand side, who would, as soon as that first bell was rung, her knee would hit the, the kneeler, right? Because that was, that was demanded by law in her book. She did, it didn't matter that there were 800, 1,000 people around her standing and singing the song to. Her tradition demanded that her knee had to hit the kneeler as soon as that first bell rung. So and um, I want... I wanted, just as a point of rubrical uh, clarification, I wanted, I wanted to bring that up with you. Uh, but apart from that also, can you address um, how the Sanctus uh, is different or is it the same uh, within the Novus Ordo as compared to the traditional Mass? Well, uh, the text of it is the same, but it's handled uh, differently. In the uh, traditional Mass, when the Sanctus is um, recited by the priest, um, he, he recites it uh, quietly in what's called a, a middle voice, uh, or at, at high, high mass, he recites it uh, quietly also with the, the deacon and the subdeacon. As far as the chanting of it, the, at high mass, the choir chants the first part of the Sanctus up to the end of the first Hosanna, uh, during the first part of the canon, and uh, after the consecration and elevation, then uh, sings the second part of, of the Sanctus, which is the uh, Benedictus. The uh, uh, during this this period of of um, uh, singing, by the way, at a high mass, the custom is, in fact, for the for the whole congregation to kneel, even though the choir uh, is is standing and is is singing. So it's it's handled a little bit uh, differently. It's not a um, uh, it's not really a congregational prayer necessarily. The Sanctus, the uh, historically it was always sung by the clergy and by the uh, by the clergy and by the choir. Uh, the Novus Ordo made this a um, uh, one of the so-called acclamations of the new mass and made it properly speaking a congregational song. So the law of the Novus Ordo requires you to, uh, for the people to stand and sing or recite the whole thing with the priest. So there, there, there's uh, a change in it. And if you uh, follow the, the rubrics of the Novus Ordo, such as they are, this would mean that, for instance, the, uh, the great polyphonic masses of um, Palestrina, or the later masses of, of, of Schubert and, uh, and Mozart, that these could no longer be sung because the congregation could not 
participate, you know, unless it's, uh, you know, a congregation of, of musicians who can sight read Palestrina. <laughs> so uh, th- this was another uh, one of those uh, features of the Novus Order that those of us uh, who are musicians uh, who were uh, enduring the introduction of, of the post-Vatican II changes just absolutely detested because we, we uh, saw in it uh, proof and a hatred on the part of the reformers for the musical and artistic tradition in the history of the church. They wanted to make everything they could congregational. Well, and, and do you have any comment on whether that, that uh, Lady of St. Mary's should be vindicated? Oh, I, I think she definitely was doing the correct thing. I would have done <laughs> it myself. <laughs> so kudos, kudos, kudos to her. Uh, kudos to her, that's right. <laughs> so. um, all right, well, that gets us, uh, with the preface and the song to Father, that gets us to the Roman canon itself. And I asked. I started our episode today by talking about canon versus Eucharistic prayer. I'm now going to put an adjective in front of canon and say Roman canon. And can you tell us a little bit about why it's the Roman canon? Well, because it's it's the prayer that's exclusively um, uh, associated, very intimately, or uh, uh, associated with the Church of Rome, with the Pope. Uh, and you, you see that uh, not only in the uh, phrasing of it in terms of the, the type of Latin that is used, uh, but uh, also in terms of uh, a few of the rubrical points in uh, in the canon that uh, reflect uh, Roman practice, historical Roman practice, such as we know it. And in the list of the saints, uh, surely because the uh, those different long lists of the saints have this uh, 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 are, are known for being uh, saints to whom the Romans had uh, a great, uh, great devotion. So it, it's uh, something that's always been uh, associated with the Church of Rome and uh, with the Pope. And it's uh, it's been, the text has been untouched at least since the 6th century. It's one of those things that goes back so far into uh, antiquity that we really don't have necessarily the uh, uh, records about its origins. It's uh, Bishop a very Tamor venerable often, text. Bishop Tamor has often cited that. It's counterintuitive, isn't it? That if you if you don't know really who authored it, that that's a sign of its uh, authenticity and uh, and validity. Uh, yes, indeed, because you have to, have to realize, um, you know, this is true in in say, the origin of church law as well, that um, you will find people saying that, well, uh, for instance, if you take the law of, uh, uh, of clerical celibacy, you'll ha- have people say that, well, well, there, there is no uh, law on this really until, uh, you know, maybe the year 500. But um, what people fail to realize is that in uh, the history of the church, there are so many things that were done by uh, custom, and that custom itself is is a type of unwritten law, and you follow the practice that uh, someone who uh, of the previous uh, generation in the church something that he did, and he followed something that the uh, person before him did, and uh, this is this is how a, a custom develops, and it goes uh, goes back 
some of them go back so far that you can't really um, fix exactly the origin, uh, except to say that, that certain things are, are uh, you know, from apostolic tradition. So uh, the uh, sometimes the absence of a law and the absence of a documentary uh, evidence is just simply the result of a long-standing custom of being observed. And I suppose should any of our listeners doubt Father's assertion that a custom can sometimes operate as a law, I would invite them to come visit me in France sometime and, and incorrectly slice cheese that's supposed to be cut a certain way because it's a certain type of cheese. Uh, and you'll find out that the customs are indeed laws sometimes, uh, and you may not know it. They, but the French will let you know. <laughs> you do say, Father. <laughs> um, <laughs> now, I want to get into our first uh, sort of shocking quote of the day. And as with all of our shows on the network that deal with the crisis, we have plenty of shows on the network that don't speak about the crisis of all. We have Bishop Sanborn's This is Catholicism, Father Disposito's uh, Catholic Spirituality show, so, which are we're just – operating and giving forth Catholic doctrine as it's always been without reference to what has happened at Vatican II. But whenever we do have episodes that, re- that speak about Vatican II, we always make the point that Vatican II is not where this appeared out of nowhere for the first time. And the movement to change the canon was not something that happened in 1960 or even in 1958 or even in the 50s. But Father, you referenced that uh, in the 40s, indeed, this had happened. And some of the shocking quotes from from uh, from someone who um, Jungmann had cited said uh, the I, I, again I'm sort of shocked to read this and I'm, I don't mean to scandalize our, our listeners but I'm, I'm just reading the quote here uh, the list of saints were utterly uninspiring did anyone call upon Linus, Linus Cletus Clement Cornelius or Cyprian as intercessors in their daily needs no wonder then that this veneration became heavily folkloric or even superstitious. Uh, What you have there is is a comment that's typical of the sort of thing that was going around that people were saying openly at the time of the Second Vatican Council. Uh, The quote that you read is from uh, Father Emminghaus, who wrote extensively, as a German liturgist, wrote extensively on the the so-called reform. And he was basing his... um, uh, his comments on the theories of uh, the infamous uh, Joseph, Joseph Jungmann, who we uh, spoke about in, in a previous, um, in, actually in several previous shows. Uh, and Jungmann in the 40s at a, a series of secret meetings with uh, different adepts of the liturgical movement uh, basically said the same thing, that uh, the canon had to be shortened, the rubrics all had to be changed, the idea of the saints, um, uh, that these these lists had to be shortened, you had to de-emphasize the consecration, etc. But what he was saying in private, uh, now is, uh, by the time you get to the 60s and 70s, is being said quite openly, and that's what uh, Emminghaus is a perfect example of that. So the Roman canon had to go. So within the within the context of those changes, Father, we have we have a series of changes, and and the first one really is ecumenism. And again, I frustrating to read some of this. This is a uh, from a uh, 
a Lutheran scholar's um, summary of basic Protestant objections to the canon. And within this, uh, this citation, which you, you give at length in, in your book, it says, because the prayers of the Roman canon with their ceremonies were such truthful expositions of corrupt medieval doctrine, all the reformers denounced them. So the idea of the canon as, uh, interestingly, a truthful exposition of corrupt medieval doctrine, <laughs> that, the, that the Eucharist and, and the idea of the Eucharist was something invented in the Middle Ages. So um, why change the canon uh, regarding ecumenism? Obviously, this was one of the, the, the keys to the reform of Vatican II, was the key teaching was, in fact, ecumenism. And you had to de-emphasize or uh, omit those concepts that were uh, offensive to uh, the uh, heretical uh, Protestant Eucharistic theology. So just as in the uh, collects of the new Mass, you removed uh, a concepts that were offensive to uh, members of uh, non-Catholic groups. So, too, you did the same thing in the canon. And the canon, remember, and the prayers of the offertory contained uh, a whole lot of language, the sacrificial language, especially the notion of, of the Mass as a sacrifice of propitiation, that was absolutely repugnant to the so-called Reformation theology. So obviously it, it had to go, and especially if you said this thing out loud every day in the vernacular, that it would be really in uh, really uh, in your face, as it were, when it came to uh, ecumenism. So it had to go. So ecumenism is part of it, also modernism. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, that uh, you know the other. Uh, the other horn, as it were, the other devil's horn of uh, the uh, reform. And uh, modernists objected to the canon for a number of reasons. First of all, uh, obviously, they are ecumenists. So uh, they had the, the uh, reason of ecumenism. But then they always know better. The modernists always know better in terms of uh, what they call their scholarship. And they promoted the idea during the 30s, the 40s, and the 50s that, well, a Eucharistic prayer uh, had to have certain elements in it. And these elements we saw in the Eucharistic prayers of the different uh, Eastern churches. And the Roman canon was therefore quite, quite defective. And so we had to do something to remedy this, uh, these terrible defects of the Roman canon because it, 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 it really didn't correspond to how the canon should be. So it's, uh, uh, when you hear something like that, you want to laugh out loud because it's, um, uh, the, the the text is so venerable and uh, was considered uh, untouchable because it was considered ancient and considered therefore perfect. But these guys uh, in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s had uh, had a better idea. So uh, there there's that the uh, ecumenism, the idea of we know better in terms of our uh, scholarship. 
And then the other modernist idea is that, well, we have to uh, adapt the, these liturgical texts to the psychology of modern man, to the, the spirituality of this, this wonderful world that we are now living in, this wonderful modern world. And the Roman canon, you know, has all this emphasis on sin, the sin business and damnation, and that's really not in accord with the, um, with the mentality of, of uh, modern man. Uh, it, 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 it's too um, spiritual, as it were. So we have to um, uh, accommodate this to the mentality of uh, our times. Also, it has these expressions of humility. And, uh, you know, this is the 60s. We're talking, I'm okay, you're okay, transactional analysis, etc. Et we need a positive self-image. So people can't... Um, uh, have that positive self-image if they hear all this language about beseeching and humility and abasement before God. So that's the the uh, uh, other set of ideas, the the uh, uh, modernism that w- uh, made it necessary to get rid of the Roman canon. Well, in in this heading, Father, this is where also we get the title for the chapter. You you quote Bugnini as saying that the use of the Roman canon alone was quote a deplorable impoverishment that had been a typical result of centuries of liturgical decadence. Uh, And in case our listeners want to hear it in the original, uh, deplorable impoverishment in Italian is deplorable di pauperamento. It sounds pretty terrible, uh, even in the Italian. Um, (laughs) Liturgical decadence. uh, This is, this is the, I, I want our listeners to understand this is the perspective. This is the amount of disrespect that you have to have for the, the Catholic mass in order to wield such terrible tools of destruction. And keeping in mind that the watchword of the so-called reformers is to move as quickly as is possible. So as you talked about in another show um, on Holy Week, that they could only do so much within Holy Week because they didn't want to move too fast, too quickly. Um, there are time bombs even here, so they, they even indicated and telegraphed within the new mass they weren't done yet, uh, and they set their own time bombs. And can you tell us about those, Father? Well, the um, the uh, reference actually there is to um, uh, the Second Vatican Council that that uh, one of the uh, the fathers at uh, the Second Vatican Council, the Archbishop of Cambrai, uh, talked about um, how. In uh, one of the paragraphs in the liturgical uh, constitution, how we could be laying time bombs for the future, and sure enough, that's what uh, what happened. That the constitution of the sacred liturgy, of course, uh, was written by Bugnini, and uh, the language in there was sufficiently broad uh, to justify a wide variety of liturgical changes. Now, at the time of the council, I'm sure that none of the uh, council fathers, or very few, uh, anticipated that the Roman canon itself would be something that would be subject to change. Yet, this is exactly what the uh, passages in the Constitution of the Sacred Liturgy um, were used for, and there there were uh, uh, five or six passages that the reformers 
cited once the reform got going uh, that would allow them to change the uh, change the canon. So that is the so they laid the groundwork in the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, and this is uh, this is what became of it. And uh, that's all in Sacrosanctum Concilium, and Father provides the citations for that in, in the book. Um, the the last uh, reason to change the canon, Father, you list as someone, Father Cipriano Vagagini, who is a Benedictine. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about him? Yes, he was a um, scholar in the liturgical movement. He was a, a Benedictine, and he was uh, in favor of the different liturgical reforms. Strange to say, he had um, uh, after Vatican II, he had actually a uh, reputation in conservative circles for being so more traditional and more conservative. But he was, uh, in fact, one of the people who was responsible for the destruction of the Roman canon. Uh, he wrote a, a book uh, on the uh, Roman canon called The Canon of the Mass and Liturgical Reform. I remember reading this myself during those years. and It was a highly, highly influential book. Uh, because he he was a very well-known liturgical scholar. The book went everywhere. And he provided a critique of the uh, Roman canon. So he uh, listed uh, among different problems. Uh, It gives an uh, impression of an agglomeration of features with no unity. Uh, There's no logical connection of ideas. Uh, the prayers of intercession are unsatisfactory. Uh, there's an exaggerated emphasis on the idea of the offering and acceptance of gifts. Gifts. There's not um, uh, an epiclesis, that is to say, a prayer calling down the Holy Ghost. There's a lack of theology in the part played by the Holy Ghost in the Eucharist. Deficiencies in the qui pridie, Difficulties in the simplices. Uh, the lists of saints are awful and it lacks an overall presentation of the history of salvation. So, uh, you know, you, they, they talk about the miracle of the Mass, uh, some spiritual writers, and after you read Vagagini, you think, well, if the Roman canon was uh, so bad, the miracle, the real miracle, is that it survived for, what, 1,500 years. So, <laughs> uh, so there was... Uh, this 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 devastating criticism, and then in the book he uh, presented alternatives, his own alternatives, an alternative by a, a German modernist named Karl Amen, uh, another German modernist, obviously Hans Küng, uh, his own um, version of of a rewritten Roman canon. So uh, this book uh, was. Um, uh, translated into all the major languages and went everywhere in the world. So this laid out the justification for getting rid of the uh, Roman canon. So uh, the uh, he, he, Vagagini was a uh, uh, was a key figure in uh, actually in getting rid of it. Well, and I suppose there's just a bit of inside baseball for me here. Father, because you, at the end of this uh, heading, you refer to uh, the elves in Bugnini's workshop. And I, I just thought, 
I'm used to elves and, and Santa's workshop just being such merry creatures, and they're building these little toys for kids. And and thinking of the elves in Bugni's workshop, these are these are horrible creatures, certainly. <laughs> I don't. I, where, where did you where did you think of this? Uh, maybe the movie Gremlins. I think that had something to do with it. <laughs> Uh, but it, the um, uh, it's a it's really at the time uh, it was shocking for me to read uh, Vagagini's uh, critique, you know. And I wasn't. I mean, I was maybe I was in high school when I read the thing, and I thought this is really outrageous stuff. This is really outrageous stuff. How can he say this? But uh, sure enough, it had its effect, and the Roman canon was, uh, uh, in effect, made optional. And in the practical order, it's uh, uh, only rarely used anymore. Now, we, as far as how the canon is recited, we are used to, again, because you celebrate the, the, the Catholic Mass, and that's the Mass that I attend, and, and many of our listeners, although some of them aren't, some of our listeners um, go to the Novus Ordo, um, are used to the canon being recited silently. And this is a tone that has completely disappeared from the Novus Ordo. I, I think there's a tone that you can say in a little bit more hushed of a voice than out loud or shouting or mic, mic voice, I suppose, is, is in the rubrics for the Novus Ordo. But um, can you explain, Father, why silence and, and how that practice was immemorialized within the Catholic Mass? Who were the first people to attack it? And how did Vatican II deal with silence? Okay, well, uh, first of all, in terms of the, the origin of uh, the silence in the canon of the Mass, the scholars who, who looked at this uh, actually had uh, difficulties pr uh, fixing a, a precise, uh, precise date on it. Uh, there's a uh, doctoral thesis, which actually was um, fairly famous by Father Charles Lewis, and he uh, tried to trace the history of silence in the Roman canon. But again, you know, there are uh, documentary uh, problems because when it comes to early liturgical history, you uh, so few documents have, uh, have survived. His theory was that, that it was always recited um, aloud in the early history of the church. But he doesn't really necessarily uh, prove that because he doesn't have all of the, uh, he, he doesn't really have the documentation to, um, uh, to back it up. So, but whatever the case may be during the early centuries of, of uh, the church, uh, fixing an exact date on when uh, the use of silence in the canon of the mass became uh, Universal is, is uh, difficult. This, Father Lewis says that uh, by the ninth century, at least, the silent recitation of the Roman canon was fully entrenched in the West. And uh, he, you get that conclusion because there are commentators, people who are writing commentators on the Mass, who talk about how great silence has uh, descended 
you know, when uh, the, the priest goes into the prayer uh, in which the body and blood of, of the Lord are consecrated. So you get that in uh, the ninth century. So the uh, from that point uh, on, the documentation in the West is clear that the canon was not uh, recited aloud. And the uh, explanation, uh, the most likely explanation for it, is that, well, the uh, canon was recited in silence out of, uh, uh, in the silent voice out of a spirit of awe and reverence for the sacred mysteries that, uh, that were taking place. So that, that one uh, retains, uh, uh, one practiced silence at this time uh, in, uh, in the presence of something that was uh, so extraordinarily holy. So it's 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 that uh, that particular theme that you find in the different liturgical commentators. Uh, the other um, point to be noted: one uh, one talks about the restoration of reciting a text aloud as a um, uh, as a practice, uh, restoring a practice of of the early church. The other thing you have to remember is. Um, if you're in a big basilica, how many people are going to hear you anyway? And that doesn't, uh, that for some reason doesn't uh, occur to um, uh, the modernists who talk about being able to hear absolutely everything in, in early Christian worship. How that, that is the ideal, because you'd have to project your voice at an enormous volume uh, to, uh, to be heard. And also, if uh, experience in, in modern countries where things are a little more primitive, uh, such as, for instance, in, in Mexico or any indication, your church is full of noise as well, because you have, have, uh, you'll still have maybe people talking or little animals running into the church or things like that. So the, 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 the idea that um, absolutely every word has to be heard is a restoration of a primitive Christian practice really doesn't make any sense in the practical order either. Well, and Father, just as a point of curiosity, uh, well, I, have, I have two two points. One is, uh, I think for me that the the the, the canon that, that silent part of the mass is one of the most powerful, one of the, sort of the loudest. It speaks the loudest to a Protestant or to someone who doesn't come from our faith. That when they come in and they realize just dead silent, and these actions are leading up towards the most important part of the mass. It really hits home with them. I wanted to find out from you what you found from reactions to people, particularly, I'm sure, the first time they've gone to Mass, whether they're lapsed Catholics uh, or Protestants, they, they might have re what, what their remarks to you on that silence was. And then uh, just sort of, a, again, a point of, of order, um, one of the SSPX ordinations that I attended way back when, they had Bishop Tissier Mike for the canon. So even though he was saying in the silent tone, we heard all of it, uh, no matter where you were in the tent, you heard it. Uh, and you, yeah, I was edified, obviously, by his uh, by the way that he uh, said mass. Uh, he he says mass quite reverently. But uh, it, I, I don't I don't suppose that would have been normal for ordinations. But they didn't have microphones back in the day, so maybe that there was no norm there for for how that was. But could you comment on those two things, please? 
All right, well, uh, first of all, the reason that he would have recited it in a lou louder voice uh, at ordination is that's prescribed by the rubrics because the newly ordained priests are supposed to recite those silent prayers uh, along with him. So that uh, uh, the idea is that they uh, celebrate the Mass with the bishop who consecrates, who ordains them. So uh, they recite all of the, the prayers together with him. So Now, are the ordinati also at that slightly elevated tone, or are they silent? Uh, no, the, the, ones, the ones who are ordained are supposed to... Um, uh, uh, they're supposed to recite it uh, a little bit louder. Okay. Uh, not not at the top, uh, but um, so that they coordinate their um, uh, what they're saying with what the bishop is saying as he says it. So that's the that's the correct way to proceed. And then the okay. ordaining bishop uh, is is he goes at a certain pace to ensure that everyone um, recites the prayers along with him. Okay. So. Uh, that is the, the question on ordination. The other uh, issue as regards people's impression of the uh, silence in the traditional mass is uh, time and time again, you hear from new uh, new families who come to the traditional mass for the first time or uh, Protestants who come to assist at it, to assist, for instance, at a, a low mass. And they're very, very impressed by uh, by the silence and and by the uh, concentration, as it were, uh, of uh, silent prayer of the members of, of the congregation. So uh, the typical reaction you will get is they'll say that, well, it, it's so completely different, you know, from what I'm used to. And, you know, it seems so, so quiet and so recollected or so holy uh, what uh, what is going on. And that, of course, is the idea. That it's it's uh, you know there there is a sacred um, there's a sacred silence uh, that is is effected there. And I, I again I, I just reflect on on that that moment of uh, of consecration that all of us are so uh, so focused on on that moment. Again, I think that's a real dramatic. Um, Dramatic uh, break of that silence again for Protestants. Uh, some of my uh, some some Protestants who've attended uh, that I've managed to convince to come to the traditional mass. They've been quite affected by that. They thought it was it was quite a thing. And uh, again, ironic that silence uh, speaks so loudly uh, to modern man. Indeed. Um, the last thing that I want to cover in today's episode, uh, Father, and again reminder to our listeners that Chapter Twelve is too large for us to cover in, in a single episode, so it's in two parts. We're not simply trying to copy Harry Potter and and break everything into two episodes, and so we can we can have more episodes. I'm sure Father would rather have fewer episodes than more episodes. <laughs> but um, I, I referenced before Father that when I was a, a young tratty, I would see these older gentlemen, usually ushers, with their promultus buttons on their lapels of their of their suits, because of course they'd be wearing a suit to mass. Uh, especially if they go to St. Gertrude's and obey the dress code. <laughs> and and I was just sort of taken with this, that, oh yeah, you know, pro multis. And we addressed this uh, in previous episodes. So I don't want to, I don't want to revisit uh, the, the, um, the context of it. I want to deal with what you deal with, which is Patrick Henry Omlor and his, um, his contribution to this, 
which we haven't gone into depth in on other episodes and on other programs. So can you tell us about uh, for you and for many versus for you and for all uh, within the context of that? Okay, well, uh, here is is, is uh, what happened. The uh, Roman legislation uh, permitted the canon to uh, the Roman canon to be recited aloud, and so initially uh, it was recited aloud in Latin, and that's a change that I remember, and uh, that was a little bit disturbing because you had the idea of uh, before this the sacred silence, so of course it's recited aloud in Latin. Then it has to go into the vernacular, of course, because everything has to be vernacularized. So in the uh, United States and English-speaking countries, the uh, uh, canon appeared in, in uh, English in, in 1967. And the uh, words of consecration over the uh, chalice were uh, changed, or the, 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 uh, uh, the translation provided in the approved English translation was incorrect. For the uh, phrase uh, pro multis, which uh, appears in the Latin words of consecration for many, the revisers had had substituted uh, for all. So they had changed the uh, meaning of of, uh, part of the, the words of consecration. So this was a uh, this was uh, set off alarms with uh, some people, and uh, uh, Patrick Henry Omler had um, was a, a, a young father of a, a, a family in uh, California, and he had a very good um, had had a very good religious and theological education under the old system. So uh, Patrick started writing. Um, uh, uh, different articles about uh, the changes in the church. And he latched on to this issue of uh, substituting for all uh, for the Latin phrase uh, for uh, promultus, for many. So he uh, did an extensive amount of of, uh, research on uh, the issue and he uh, came to the conclusion uh, by uh, adducing texts from uh, different Catholic moral theologians and uh, the Roman Catechism and St. Thomas, uh, etc., uh, saying that the uh, consecration then of, of uh, the wine was uh, invalid in the vernacular, and that this likewise invalidated or at least cast some doubt on the consecration of the bread as well. So uh, uh, he uh, put out this this pamphlet called Questioning the Validity of Masses Using the New All-English Canon. So uh, in those days, it received a fair amount of of, uh, uh, publicity, all things considered. So he he was one of the first, and he did this in in, uh, 1968. Uh, He he put this study out, and it really... um, uh, uh, really, I think, made an impression with many Catholics who were skeptical about the Vatican II changes. So they, they 
came to the conclusion that as a result of this changing the, the meaning of Provoltus, that even the Blessed Sacrament had been taken away from them. Well, and that's a pretty disturbing thing. And, and I, I suppose pretty remarkable for a layman to uh, deal with that, Father. You're so used to dealing with, um, I suppose these days, as your latest YouTube video illustrated, you all, you have to be a lawyer now these days to attack Father Chikata and his <laughs> writing. So I'm, I'm not qualified. But uh, back then, I suppose Patrick Henry Elmore didn't know that he had to be a lawyer um, and that it was okay to actually be educated uh, when you wanted to write about these things. Yes, that's right. <laughs> so, and he was a Red Reds fan, Cincinnati Reds. But you didn't have to be a Reds fan, I think, to be able to do this. So, <laughs> so uh, I suppose uh, as 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 fellow laymen, we might spare a prayer for the repose of the soul of Patrick Henry Elmore whenever we uh, whenever we think of him. He, uh, yes, indeed, he was a great man. Great man. Well, I, I'm going to artificially just stop our conversation here, Father. As I said, uh, we're going to cover part two uh, next month in next month's episode. Um, coming up to this part, so what comes ahead are the future, the new Eucharistic prayers. Um, coming up to this part, Promultus, the canon itself, anything else that you'd like to talk about today that you feel like we didn't highlight that you'd like to talk about? Well, I think we, we uh, have basically covered the uh, essential points. One thing I, I would like to reemphasize, though, is is the uh, the truly the radical nature of uh, undertaking a critique of the Roman canon and deciding, uh, in effect, to uh, abolish it in the practical order, which, as we'll we'll see next uh, time around is what the uh, what the reformers wanted to do and what they ended up doing practically speaking so it's it's uh, uh, again it's one of those those uh, features of the liturgical reform that is uh, really so astoundingly uh, radical that it uh, causes your 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 jaw to drop well and I think that's a important note and that's where we'll end our our episode for today father thanks so much for your time and we look forward to getting through the second part of chapter 12 with you uh next month's episode fantastic we will be hearing from you then god bless you thank you father we want to remind our listeners if you have any questions for father if you have follow-up on anything we've covered you can write him um, work of human hands at truerestoration.org um let me verify that. No, I think it, no, sorry, forgive me. It's humanhands at truerestoration.org. Simply humanhands at truerestoration.org. We want to remind you that Work of Human Hands is a production of the Restoration Radio Network. All rights reserved that any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. To obtain permission, please write to mail, M-A-I-L, at truerestoration.org. All of us here at the Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you found the show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and to your faith, that you please consider sending a note of thanks to the clergy who helped make our network worthwhile. Remember that above and beyond material contributions, the most important donation you can make to our work here is prayer. Please think of offering a mass, a rosary, or even a simple ave for our work the next time that you pray. For the Restoration, I am Stephen Heiner. May God bless you.
This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.